0: This is the Bigger Pockets podcast, show
1: 98.
2: You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from biggerpockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
0: What's going on everybody? I'm Josh Dorkin, host the bigger pockets podcast here with my co-host mr brandon turner what's up brandon
1: I'm just trying to throw you off by making some fun faces at the camera.
0: <laughs> you're killing me you're yeah, killing me try. how you doing i'm i'm good happy thanksgiving happy thanksgiving yeah yeah today is uh today's our thanksgiving show 2014
1: which, yeah which the vast majority of people listen to this it's not listening on thanksgiving but whatever you with know, oh, possibly deal with it Possi- deal with yeah,
0: you know is it is it better to listen to you and I or to listen to the bickering that's happening at the dinner table with that's the true. family that's true
1: that's true or the football game to go watch Dallas lose or something i don't know yeah
0: yeah i mean i i personally choose me so there you yeah. go good mom job mom and dad if i'm not there here's why <laughs> i am uh yeah man things are things are good we got a pretty pretty cool show for everybody today I'm definitely excited about it before we get into that. actually excited about a few other things over here at bigger pockets. We've been adding some some new folks and and so you know definitely uh, uh, want to give a shout out to all the new bigger pockets family members who've joined up in the past few months. Uh, very I am thankful to everybody who has come on and joined our team and and begun working for us. Uh, You know, it's, it's been really exciting watching this company grow. And and so I'm, I'm just thankful to all of you and actually to you in particular, Brandon, who, who last week celebrated two years working for us here at bigger pocket. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, for all those people who think you're one of my, the founders, that's just not true. <laughs> Stop spreading the lies. And no, I am really, I'm very thankful to have you. I, you're an amazing asset. And all of our visitors and listeners uh, should be thankful to have you here as well.
1: Well, thank you. I am thankful for this job. This is a good thing to be doing every week. I'm, I wouldn't want to be doing anything else. So. Well,
0: that's awesome, man. That's
1: awesome. All well, right, moving on. Well,
0: well, cool. Well, let's let's move on and kind of talk about our guest. Our guest is a man named Alan Glass. Alan has been in real estate for quite a quite a while. He's been doing this uh, for a few decades now, and and in the Southern California Los Angeles area, uh, from pretty much everything from commercial to residential flipping. You know, he's pretty much done on it. Uh, he's done it all, and and he's got just a ton of amazing insight on some advanced topics that we we really haven't covered before. And I'm super excited. You know there's a big focus on creating value out of real estate and 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 so if if you don't know what that means, then I definitely definitely recommend listening and and even if you do know what it means you know this this show might kind of uh uh should give you a few things to think about so i I certainly recommend paying attention and uh that's that's what I got Brandon. you have anything you want to add or
1: you want to do our quick tip
0: yeah let's let's do our quick, quick tip. tip what is right. it
1: today's quick tip is Go tell somebody today you're thankful for them. That's it. Aww, Look at that's that.
0: really sweet. You're, you're such a nice guy. It's not true what they say about you. It's not true. My mom loves me.
1: <laughs> all right.
3: Uh, that's the quick tip. Yeah. Nice and quick today. We know and you all know why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion Certified Tenant Screening, RentReady now offers Proof of Income Verification. RentReady's Automatic Tenant Proof of Income Verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid Certified Tenant Income and Assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with rent ready. And as a matter of fact, all bigger Pockets pros have rent ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, rentready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R-E-N-T-R-E-D-I dot com using code BP2024. That's BP, like bigger pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of RentReady. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your resident's living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as quantum fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability, service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price-for-life offer and may be increased. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here! It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply sixty-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get twenty percent off of any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe.
0: All right, guys, well let's uh, let's get this thing going. Let's bring on Alan. Alan, welcome to the show, man. It's great to
2: have you here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Great. Um, I'm really looking forward to today's show because you know a lot of times we talk to the guys who are just getting started. Like last week we talked to Kyle who was just getting started. Uh, you got started a long time ago though. I mean not like you know in oh, the wow, 30s, really? but <laughs> I'm not calling you old. I'm just saying you got right started, out of the gates. right? Like <laughs> you were you were doing real estate when I was you know still probably in I don't know if diapers was the right word, but
0: 30 is old to Brandon. So <laughs> let's you know.
1: Aaron. So yeah, let's talk about your story. When did you get started? And uh, you know, kind of what got you into real estate?
2: Uh, Tinker Toys and Legos. Nice. Nice. Uh, You know, it's uh, honestly, it was, uh, well, I started out uh, in college uh, as pre-med major and learned very quickly uh, after, well, halfway through my first semester that uh, nine years of studying biology, chemistry, and physics just wasn't for me. So I went through a bit of an identity crisis and uh, my grandfather had uh, been in the business. And so I been around the trades you know, since I was a little kid and always enjoyed, like I said, playing with Tinker Toys and, and Legos and building things. So it was a natural progression for me to find the real estate side. I thought at first I wanted to go into architecture, but uh, realized that it's five years uh, and all of the work that I had done my first semester would basically count for nothing. So, uh, lucked into, to the business school and found a real estate finance degree and, and started out there.
0: Nice. Nice. And so you were at USC and, and ended up with a, a real estate finance uh, degree, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, uh, from there it's, uh, it was all roses, my, uh, freshman and sophomore year. Uh, and by the time I graduated, we were in the midst of, uh, the last great recession back in the early nineties. And, Everyone was dealing with foreclosures, losing properties, trying to figure out what to do. Uh, A lot of people losing their job. Uh, So uh, as a lot of people would think, I guess that would be the worst time to graduate and try and find a job in real estate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think
2: actually it it turned out to be one of the best times and uh, a lucky turn for me.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, so we haven't actually talked to a lot of folks who have finance degrees in real estate. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And so... I'll just take this chance to ask you. I mean, was that something that you found found to give you a, a distinct advantage at all, or or is that kind of par for the course for getting into the commercial space?
2: Uh, no, there there are a lot of people that have you know varying degrees. Not everyone has a finance degree, and uh, coming out of the gates, you learn all the fancy formulas and ways to uh, analyze real estate. And got uh, a quick punch in the face on my my very first. Uh, what I was hoping would be, uh, you know, a big positive presentation with the top brokers uh, in the company and uh, gave them financial management rates of return, uh, you know, along with cap rates and yields and all that stuff. And the uh, one of the senior guys looked at me and just said, you know, what is this nonsense? No this. <laughs> and back to cap rates and internal rates of return and all the simple stuff that most everyone that's at least on the finance side of real estate understands.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, would you then recommend? I mean, do you think it's something worthwhile for young folks? We, we, I get emails, by the way, from people. I've uh, from sixteen-year-olds, seventeen-year-olds, eighteen-year-olds who always ask, always ask me, you know, what should I do? Should I, you know, focus on this in school, or should I just worry, you know, worry about it afterwards? So, what what would you say?
2: Um, I I think it's definitely a positive, and it. Uh, what I found again, going back to the fact that I came out of real estate when everything was in the tank is it gives you a bit more of an arsenal to figure out what something is worth or how to add value uh, to real estate. So for me, it was a tremendous advantage. Uh, It was a great time to come out in real estate, again, sort of contrary to what most people would think, because uh, you couldn't luck into success. You really had to figure out what to do with a piece of property that was vacant, boarded shut, or was functionally obsolete and needed to turn into something else in order to add value and do transactions.
0: Gotcha.
1: I think that's an interesting point about like when you get started... Uh, when you get started in a market that's climbing very rapidly, like imagine getting started in 2005 in real estate, right? Like everybody is a genius in a bull market. Right. is that the, the quote, right? So, yep. like, Absolutely. And then, yeah, so they do really well for three years and they go on a speaking tour around the country about here's how you make millions in real estate. And I mean, I, I, I think that's great. I mean, it's one of the things I hold as one of the, uh, I don't know what you call it, like the benefits. I don't know. What's the word I'm looking for? Whatever, whatever. The things that like I got started in late 2007, right? So like I learned from everything falling apart. I mean, that was my, yeah. my lesson and it sounds like you're the same way. And I think a lot of investors uh, that are still around today that have been doing this for a long time are like that. Uh, can I ask a little bit more about like when you got that first, you got out of college and you got into real estate. Um, yep. Did you start buying your own properties at that point? Were you What were you doing? Were you working for a larger company and helping you know, analyze or what was your role then at the beginning?
2: Yeah, I, I my first job was with a company called Cushman Wakefield, which is one of the largest commercial brokerage firms uh, yep. in the United States. And uh, I ran their industrial market research department and uh, was bored out of my mind.
0: In fact, uh, <laughs> what does uh, that I, mean anyway? Like well,
2: I, I lasted, I think it was nine months. Um, but just to to give you an example, the guy that trained me was the guy that had my job before me. And he said, well, really, this is a job that takes about Two days a week to do, but if you just kind of slow yourself down, uh, no one will bother you, and uh, you can (laughs) make it stretch out and last a week. So I knew I was going to look like an all-star following that guy. Um, (laughs) Nice, um, but uh, but yeah. So (laughs) no, we'll we'll keep that one quiet. (laughs) But uh, so way I started was uh, just really kind of trying to fill out those extra three days of the work week and find out what what other opportunities were there, getting to know all the brokers, uh, the senior guys, asking them uh, what kind of deals they were working on and trying to figure out the type of real estate that I wanted to get into. Uh, so I actually ended up meeting one of the senior brokers that owned a bunch of shopping centers uh, in, a, of all places, Arizona. And uh, the problem he had is that uh, you know he'd put a tenant in pay commissions, pay for tenant improvements. And then within a few months, the tenant was out of business and uh, he hadn't even, even broken even on the cost to get the tenant in there. So the uh, the idea that I had uh, was from actually one of the shopping centers around USC, a guy that uh, would get involved with the entrepreneur program and mentor these guys that were starting new businesses, give them space as his investment, and it sort of helped them move along and you know, become more successful or get a, a greater chance of succeeding um, out of the gates. So, I got the opportunity of all things to pitch a restaurant uh, to someone that was looking at restaurant space. And uh, you know, I had been a busboy for a few months uh, when I was uh, sixteen or seventeen years old, and that was pretty much the experience nice. I had. But nice. uh, made the pitch anyway, and uh, the guy liked it and said, "Okay, well, if you put together a business plan, um, I'll be your investor." So being uh, as wise as uh, most people are when they're 21, I quit my job (laughs) with no money and moved. You were going to be a
0: restaurateur, though.
2: Right. Exactly. I had these, you know, great plans. And uh, sure enough, I I moved to Arizona. I lived in a fishing trailer and showered in the uh, spigot outside the warehouse (laughs) records, (laughs) wrote my business plan. The guy put me off. For several months until finally I couldn't wait any longer and I just decided you know there's no way I was going home with my tail between my legs so I pulled out every credit card I could learned how to collaborate by finding engineers that were willing to trade or excuse me electricians that were willing to trade work for beer and uh and food and got my (laughs) restaurant up and running and uh that was really my first real estate deal. It was more of an entrepreneurial venture, but it came out of real estate. And uh, so.
0: So did that, uh, your investor fell through? I mean, the guy never, never showed up.
2: Guy never showed up. Uh, So we funded it ourselves, myself and my partner with, uh, like I said, every credit card that, uh, that we could coax a bank into giving us and, uh, uh, you know, all the trade that we can do. So. Wow.
0: Wow. And, and uh, I'd like to just like chat on that for just a second, because I've, I've had a couple conversations in the past few days with people who have been, you know, come to me about investors who've who've talked to them and and said, hey, you know, I, you know, they've expressed to me an how, you know, excited they are that these investors have said, you know, they want to get involved with them and they want to work with them and and I, I guess I just want to kind of put it out there to folks who may not know this. Just because somebody says that they're interested in working with you doesn't mean that they're interested in working with you today. Um, and Or they may never really want to work with you, and they may just be polite, they may be excited for the moment, but you know it happens a lot where you know you talk to somebody and they say hey yeah listen that sounds great that's a project i'm really interested in and in the end it never happens so i i think there's this expectation thing that i tend to hear from a lot of people how super excited they are about stuff and the money falls through and they're just they're lost they don't know what to yeah. do their life is over because they've put everything into this money coming and and as somebody who's been in the business as long as you have I'm sure you've seen this many, many times, and I guess I'd love to hear your take and, and maybe some encouraging words to folks who, you know, yeah, A, don't set your expectations too high, you know, but, but what else would you say?
2: Well, I, I agree with you. Uh, you come to someone with a good idea. It's a rare person who says, wow, that sounds spectacular. I'm not interested. Right. Right. Um, but if you're going to put all of your eggs in one basket, then it's really kind of on you. Uh, you know, if it doesn't work out. So I believe you should always have a backup plan. Um, It kind of goes back to what I was saying about coming out as a a finance major and understanding various ways to analyze real estate. If if all you know is how to, you know, figure out a cap rate, and that's the only way that you can figure out value, then you're kind of limited in the scope of what you can do. But just like uh, starting a business and finding capital, if you know, you're looking for backup plans, if you're looking for second, third equity investors, several lenders that might be interested, or if that all falls through, what's an alternative way to finance something, then you stand a better chance of success.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, can can you tell us really quickly about the restaurant, what happened, how to, how to go, and then I want to kind of move on to more of the traditional
2: real estate. The Real estate. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, once we got it up and running, I, you know, I didn't want to run a restaurant. I just wanted to learn how to start a business. So, uh, about a year into it, I moved back to Los Angeles and, uh, met back up with one of the, uh, top brokers that uh, I actually had interned for when I was at USC. And uh, he, at the time, was getting into REO real estate. This was still in the very early 90s. So REO was a fairly new thing, especially on the commercial side of real estate. And uh, what was different back in the early 90s is uh, commercial brokerages in particular didn't want to handle or deal with the junk, which was what REO property was. So since this guy had really focused his efforts on that, they kind of gave him the uh, ultimatum. You can stay and work on commercial real estate that, you know, we feel is appropriate for our company, or you can leave. And he chose to leave, and that happened to coincide right about the time that I was looking to come back and get into real estate. So the two of us left together and basically started a brokerage company on our own in downtown that focused on, uh, REO properties and in particular commercial REO properties.
0: Nice. Nice. That's great. And, and how, how did that go? And I, I know eventually, you know, you, you went to New York and you got a master's. So, you know, I, maybe you could kind of transition in there and then we're going to probably just start beating you on the head with all sorts of commercial real estate questions.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess fast forward through, uh, the next four uh, to eight years, you know, I, I moved out of brokerage, Uh, you know, we were doing 50, plus reo deals a month at one point um, oh. as brokers until finally i got to a point where i had saved enough capital to buy my own property uh, and started investing rehabbing and selling and uh towards the end of the 90s i started to notice that the spreads that are you know, our profits were starting to shrink as investors got a little more aggressive or rehabbers got a little more aggressive uh in the way that they would price themselves into a deal So and that was typically basically pricing in appreciation, assuming that the market was going to continue to go up. So Mm -hmm.
1: which sounds um, a lot like uh, sounds a lot like today, what we see today with investors paying more and more.
2: Exactly. And, you know, unfortunately, that didn't work out well. I mean, I guess it worked out well, but not as well as it could have. I sold everything uh, that I owned uh, investment wise uh, in 2000. And cashed out to go and get my master's degree in, in New York, uh, a master's in real estate development. But over the course of the next three years, if I'd have held on to that property, I would have seen a nice run up. But just, you know, my mind told me that uh, it was starting to get too aggressive and that was time to to sort of price myself or, or move myself back out and yeah. stay conservative. Then uh, when I came back from Columbia, I got back into renovating again, rehabbing properties uh, just by accident uh, bought a property in North Pasadena and started falling in love with all, all the historic districts that uh I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Pasadena where the Rose Parade is held yeah, every year yeah. but uh they have you know beautiful homes craftsman homes spanish style homes that were built in the early 1910 1920s era uh and started restoring those uh and, uh, and and working on the brokerage side with larger developers in Los Angeles, focusing on downtown Los Angeles and uh, the adaptive reuse ordinance and you know turning around old functionally obsolete office buildings into loft apartment buildings.
0: All right. So uh, let, let, let's kind of examine some of the stuff. First, let, let's talk about functional obsolescence for those people listening who may not know what that means. Can you kind of fill that in a little bit?
2: Sure. It's uh, when you know originally a building is built for a specific purpose. An example might be a warehouse building, and as time goes on, several things can change. Either where it's located is no longer suited for that type of use, or just the the actual building itself is no longer functionally able to you know handle warehousing the way that modern warehouse buildings would be. So you're left with a building that uh, has less or no value. Uh, and you need to come up with a new idea on how to repurpose that building for something that would provide value.
0: Is that a complicated process? I mean, the, you have to work with the city, I'm assuming, to to do a lot of that stuff, correct?
2: Yeah, you need to know where it's encouraged. Uh, it's you, you can't just go into an industrial zone, for example, and decide that you're going to build housing. Right. Uh, so, you know, you need to understand the appetite for that from the city's planning side, um, but you also need to sort of understand the way that consumers are, are going to view it. You know, a, a lot of times it, 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 you'll go into a particular area and people just don't want to live there or live there yet. So you, you've got to watch both sides of that to really be successful at it.
0: And what data do you look at to, to make those determinations? I mean, it seems like it's almost... As much of a bet like an appreciation play as, well, it's almost similar to an appreciation bet. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of rolling the dice a little bit based on certain data, right? So what data yeah. are you actually analyzing for something like that?
2: Well, I try and find the path of progress. And uh, I always talk about bookends. So I, I look, when I'm looking at a particular market, I look for two particular bookends or neighborhoods and areas that are already thriving. Um, whether they, they're they new and have been turned down or they're just traditionally strong areas. And then I watch how the market's sort of growing out from those centers uh, and try and fill in in the middle of those bookends. An example of that in Los Angeles would be downtown Los Angeles and the west side of Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, west side, obviously, is the where all the higher-end homes, uh, where the beaches are. Uh, downtown, obviously, is the, the old commercial center, which is – turned around quite a bit lately. So in between, there's a freeway called the 10 Freeway, Santa Monica Freeway that connects it. Um, And those neighborhoods in between uh, over the course of the last 20 or so years uh, have fallen into disrepair or become less desirable. But as that 20-year period has sort of moved forward, um, you can see that those neighborhoods edge out from those particular bookends and fill in and properties go up, property values go up.
0: Right on, right on. All right, and I know we're jumping around, and I'm sorry, but, you know, you know brain is stimulated. We got a lot going on here. Um, I want to jump back really, really, really quickly to the master's and mm-hmm. ask you the same questions about that I asked you about the undergrad. Is a master's, was your master's well worth the time and energy spent uh, getting it?
2: For me, yes, and and really more so by the network and connections that I made, the, the, the people that I went to school with, less so about the... Uh, uh, book smarts or or uh the lessons that i got sitting in class and, okay yeah. you know my, my purpose for going across the country to new york is everything i had done from my education to all the deals i had done had been southern california centric yeah and i wanted to know you know well how do they do real estate in in the east coast and is it any different the answer to that is no it's it's not any different um you know, which I guess you get a lot of confidence from knowing that you can understand how to do things in different markets and in different areas.
0: Yeah, right on. And then the other thing I was going to ask, just give me kind of a broad picture of, you know, for everybody listening. I mean, it sounds like you were rehabbing properties, you've done Mm -hmm. commercial deals of various sorts. Um, uh, You know, what else have you done as an investor for yourself? I mean, have you done buy and hold properties, um, multis, uh, office. I mean, give us kind of the really quick synopsis of what you've kind of accomplished. And then we're going to start really digging in on some of these things.
2: Sure. Yeah, we've uh, floated through uh, uh, different product types, uh, property types. Uh, really, the focus in my practice is value added or opportunity driven real estate. So, um, you know, we've bought anything from boarded shut crack houses in South Central Los <laughs> Angeles. Nice yeah to uh you know small uh apartment buildings that uh, we assembled together for larger development sites um you know to small retail commercial properties around Los Angeles
1: nice right you know, on. you know what just kind of comes to mind when you're talking about that is you know I'm a i don't know I'm residential only right that's all i focus mm-hmm. on but you seem to focus mm-hmm. on a wider variety of things um I guess do you have any, I guess, advice for me? I mean, like, should I be looking at commercial as well? Look at whatever's out there. I mean, I guess the, the line between commercial and residential is usually pretty strict, but with you it's kind of blurred. So uh why is that? And any thoughts on that?
2: Um yeah, I I guess the the first bit of advice I'd give you is just to to, to understand that it's not that different. So I know a lot of people get intimidated uh when when they talk about the jump to commercial versus residential, and uh it, it really isn't that Different. Uh, it's certainly not not that much more difficult. Um, it just, um, I, I would say that there are a lot. Uh, not that the residential side doesn't have very pre- professional people uh, working in it, but um, the expectation, uh, or at least in Southern California, I, I'm not doing this all over the country, so I don't know if it's different there. But uh, the level of expertise is typically a bit higher. Yeah. Um, the the process of figuring out what something is worth is is pretty much the same if you're going to hold it for uh income purposes you're you're figuring out what you can rent the property for you're figuring out what it would cost to renovate it and put a tenant in there and the calculations are the same to get from your gross income down to your net income
0: yeah yeah, yeah. you know i you, you use the term opportunity driven real estate value add it definitely makes sense on what you were talking about in terms of uh changing the purpose Right uh, mm-hmm. of of a property, how else can somebody add value um, to uh, to real estate? And 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 maybe again for for some of the novices listening, how does that increase or improve your portfolio? So commercial is right. very different than residential, right? It's not based yeah. upon general comps. Valuations come out of something else, right?
2: Yeah. Well, I'll st- just sticking to the residential side. Uh, you know, this type of market, I think, is. Uh, a perfect example of where you add value uh, and differentiate that from distressed. Um, everyone understands how to, to rescue a distressed property, somebody that's upside down on their loan, um, uh, something that's bank owned, something that's boarded shut, and add value to it by making it pretty and selling it to a homeowner. Yeah. Uh, but there are other ways to, to find opportunity and it and it becomes, I think, very important when you're in a market like this whereas you know, short sales and distressed properties are starting to diminish. Uh, to figure out other ways that you can make something more valuable by uh, one example is uh, the one I just gave you about assembling a site together for a larger development site. An example there is where they're putting in uh, mass transit in Los Angeles, which is a fairly new thing. And they have these light rail um, trains that are one in particular that's running from downtown Los Angeles uh, to the beach in Santa Monica. So, the city is encouraging more density around those train stops. Yeah, uh, And uh, we were able to find a site that uh, was underutilized, a very big piece of land that only had, you know, it, it was actually four different properties. One had a six unit, a two unit, a three unit, and a four unit on it. And what we did is basically assembled the site together, bought one piece, got the other owners together, and helped them realize that uh, we could essentially, if they were interested in selling, Sell their property for double what it would be worth as one development site. Gotcha. Uh, and so that's how we got to uh, you know a higher price and added value there. We ultimately sold that property to an affordable housing developer that's going to build seventy-two units uh, on the site uh, for uh, veterans and seniors. That's great. Very creative. Yeah. And uh, another one is, uh, again, City of Los Angeles uh, has encouraging density come up with a a new ordinance they call the small lot subdivision ordinance. And essentially what it does is allow you in in commercial or multifamily zones to build multiple dwellings on one particular uh, parcel number. Uh, And it's uh, sort of a, a compromise between building condos uh, and building single-family homes. So you can build essentially a 600-square-foot footprint and sell it fee-simple like you would a single-family home with no homeowner's association. So we, I bought a duplex uh, on a very large piece of land uh, that also had a an alley-locked piece of land behind it. And uh, instead of just having two units on it, we're about to – tear it down and build what will be about six uh, small lot or townhouses.
0: Nice. Nice. Again, very, very creative. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And and it's interesting hearing this stuff again, because on the show, at least we, we don't talk about a lot of this stuff and I I think we need to do a better job of doing so. Uh, You know, it seems like as you kind of expand your, your knowledge base, there's obviously a lot more creative things that you can do than just, you know, simply slapping paint on a house. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it's great to hear those different things. You're still a commercial agent, correct? Yeah. And now, do you recommend that as, as a means for entering the business for people? Is that you know, something that novice investors should do? Did you get a lot out of that in terms of your knowledge in doing deals? Or I know I've asked you, again, two questions on the masters and the other stuff. A lot People are always trying to figure out, how do I get into the business? How do I learn it? Is that a great way to go?
2: Yeah, uh, you know, again, I, well, we do both commercial and residential uh, on my brokerage practice. Yep. But uh, I encourage you, you know, to you always want to add value to the transaction, right? And anything that you can bring to the table to add value is going to help you out, whether you're looking to buy on your own account um, or partner with somebody who has the money or, or someone who's going to buy a piece of property and and mm-hmm. get a taste of it so you can then spring out and go on your own. Yeah, uh, For me, it's been tremendously important it's it's how i learned to value property it's how i met most of my investors it gives me an opportunity to uh at times wholesale properties uh you know so if it's something that i pass on for one reason or another because i i have a brokerage practice and longstanding investment uh, relationships with with other buyers uh you know i can typically find put something under contract and find somebody that would be willing to take that over for me in short order that's, that's great. cool
1: it's nice to see like, you know, a lot of wholesalers that, you know, brand new, just trying to get started, you know, with no money, no nothing down. It's nice to see an experienced guy. You still wholesale deals if you can.
2: That's Absolutely. Cool. And, and you know, I'll tell you, I th- to me, there's a very big difference. There are some guys out there that consider wholesaling just taking a look on the MLS and <laughs> calling people up saying, <laughs> <No>. hey, <laughs> would you, would you want to buy this? So, you know, again add value. You should always be bringing something to the table. And if that's just something as simple as being the guy who tied it up under contract, uh, that's, that's worth something, yeah. you know, but, but yeah, I mean, that's cool. I, I, I'm a deal junkie, so I like to do deals. And if I'm not buying it myself, uh, odds are, I, I certainly know somebody at least in Los Angeles that would.
1: That's, that's great. That's cool. Yeah. Um, what is your typical? I mean, again, you you do stuff that's different than most of our guests have done. I mean, you're you, you're doing a lot of stuff. So, what does your typical day look like? I mean, a day in the life of Alan. What's that like?
0: Well, I uh, wake up, Brandon, and <laughs> like to uh, listen to Diana Ross records.
2: Right. I'm trying to think of something that sounds very sexy and, and entertaining, <laughs> but, you know, really, it's uh, looking at deals. It's I, I think that that's really the job. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, that's that's your job is rainmaking. Uh, so, you know, in real estate, that means constantly looking at deals, constantly calling people that are looking at deals. And, and you know, to me, that's other brokers, wholesalers that uh, I know are very active and are delivering deals. Uh, and the other investors that I know in town that are actively marketing. I do a lot of reading and it's not just the the nuts and bolts the real estate reading. I like to to get into the social side of it. If you understand where people are going, what uh, people are interested, it kind of gives you again a leg up yeah. trying to figure out where the next next spot to invest will be.
1: I read the other day that the average CEO reads 60 books a year. I thought that was incredible, right like like the, it was like the top five hundred Forbes whatever and yeah sixty books a year on average that's crazy I don't read anywhere close to that but yeah it's yeah. something yeah. to work towards but very cool very cool
0: yeah hey I, so I, I've got a question I mean you, you do all these different things what excites you most I mean what in real estate gets you gets your juices going
2: uh, I love solving problems uh, and and doing deals okay. so uh, when when somebody comes to me and says. I don't know what to do with this or, you know, how do we make this, this, this work that uh, that's what gets me going and gets me excited and figuring out how to put a deal together with somebody that uh, either doesn't want to sell from the beginning or, or, uh, doesn't really understand the value they have, uh, in, in an asset that they own, uh, and conveying that to them. Those are the things that get me excited.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and is that, You know that's not something that somebody who just jumps in can do, right? I mean, that's something that comes with a lot of time and experience.
2: You know, I I don't know if that's necessarily true. Um, I I think that, uh, I mean, certainly the more understanding you have of the nuts and bolts of real estate, the the better you're going to be at recognizing the immediate value uh, that you can add to a particular piece of real estate. But you know, if if you know where people want to go out at night, which neighborhoods uh, are turning around and and becoming more attractive to a particular demographic. Uh, Or, you know, you saw a cool building that somebody did or a new innovative way of using a piece of real estate, and you're able to convey that, whether you're an architect, uh, you know, a finance guy, a banker, a teacher, or have worked in a restaurant. I think those are, you know, you can certainly recognize where to add value and be successful.
0: That makes sense. Makes yeah. sense.
1: I think that's cool. I mean, yeah, no matter where you're at, whether you're just
2: getting started or whether you've
1: been doing this for you know 20 years, uh, there's definitely room for value in, in most deals. So that's very cool. Um, I, I want to know, like, you talked about go, finding deals. You mentioned, uh, you know, talking to the brokers, talking to wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any other good, I mean, are you finding things on the MLS? Are you finding them on LoopNet, on CoStar? I mean, where are you getting these deals from? Is it just the brokers and wholesalers?
2: Uh yeah I'm every day I I'm on the MLS I'm on LoopNet and I'm on CoStar uh, and you know I have different types of searches set up to to return property to me so you know I I see anything new that comes on the market but uh, other than that yeah it's reaching out to uh, in Los Angeles you know it's a pretty saturated market so there are no shortage of guys that uh, you know they're probably 200 that just focus on Venice beach, you know, there, yeah. there's no shortage of guys that'll wholesale properties. Um, and as I said, uh, you know, there's just network investors that, that, that I've worked with very closely that, you know, again, sometimes we'll pass on a deal. They'll put it under contract and wholesale it to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's, that's the way you do it is building relationships. Yeah. yeah. That's very cool. Sure.
0: Yeah. So, so I, I guess let's, let's look at the last year. I mean, you, you've been doing it for, as Brandon says, about a hundred years. um, <laughs> So we'll focus on the last year, Thanks, you know, guys. because clearly you're not going to remember anything from before that. <laughs> uh, so his words, not mine. I didn't say that one. That Josh hey, said okay. that one. okay. Just, you know. Yeah. I'm did I a, become I'm the old guy? I'm a vessel. I I, I, I've, I've been starting to ask myself the same thing, you know. <laughs>
3: We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, Ready, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets Pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's rentredi.com using code BP2024. That's VP, like bigger pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of rent ready. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. Just go to indeed.com/biggerpockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. indeed.com/biggerpockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a 3-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods in my John Mayer shrine. SimpliSafe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, SimpliSafe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. All right.
0: So in the last year, in the last 12 months, what's your favorite deal? What's the one thing that really you loved that you want, you tell everybody about, and let's talk a little bit about it.
2: Uh, my favorite one that just happened, we actually closed it in February is, uh, the land assembly site that uh, I'd mentioned earlier on, uh, that, that took quite some time to put together. Uh, and, uh, it was fun the way that we found it and figured out how to add the value. There was a lot of risk that uh, was involved in putting that together. So it was to see it come to fruition, especially it lasted through the entire recession.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so to see it come out the other side uh, fruitfully was was a big positive for me.
0: So how did how'd you, how'd you find it?
2: So um, there was a listing broker that got the listing for the three unit and the four unit that was owned by one property owner. Uh, but didn't really include the duplex that was right in the middle. And he was marketing it as a development site. And my partners and I at the time were, you know, again, in in anticipation of the trains coming in, the light rail, uh, looking for sites that we could add value to around the transit stop. So this was uh, literally across the street from one of the stops on the Expo Line train. And um, when I drove the the property, I realized that – there was that big donut hole in the middle so I'm trying to figure out you know how how is this a development site when you don't own a, the piece in the middle so I called the broker and he said well yeah I haven't really uh approached the the lady in the middle yet but uh yeah I, I don't know I guess I could call her and see if she wants to sell so immediately I drove over knocked on the door uh and uh the tenant gave me the uh, owner's phone number. I called her up and asked if she'd want to sell. She goes, yeah, well, you know, I'm actually surprised. I thought the broker that's selling the properties on each side of me uh, would have reached out to me. Nice. So got lucky and wrote an offer and uh, got it accepted. And then, you know, approached the broker about possibly selling the two together. And he put me in contact with his uh, his principal. And uh, the guy said, you know, I actually thought about taking it off the market because I'm not really sure what I want to do. Uh, so he let that listing expire, and as time wore on, I kept in touch with him and got him in, involved and, uh, and willing to you know basically come to the table with me as a principal and market our sites together. And then I figured, well, th- the guy that was on the other side of him was a six-unit building. And it had front and john and alley. So for a development site to have an additional street frontage or access point, it gives you a lot more options on how you can lay out the site and get more units. So mm. um, called the guy up and got him willing to sell. And, uh, you know, again, I always start with the question, what do you think your property's worth? And, uh, it, you know, he felt it was worth somewhere around the 575 650 mark. And I ended up getting him a million two fifty for his property.
0: Wow! Whoa. Wow! He so must uh, have been uh, very happy with you,
2: right? So, <laughs> uh, and that was simply because together as a development site, it was worth more, uh, you know, than uh, than it was individually. Yeah. Wow. yeah.
0: So, so you're, I mean, that's you're like a packager when you're doing that, right? I mean, you're you're you got to see the big picture, and and then you're really trying to work with multiple parties to kind of bring it together but now you're you're at the point where you got all these properties so how does the developer come in and you know how do we finance that and how does that whole thing come together
2: yeah. So this was a market where it really was a transitioning area and uh, the cost to develop a property and uh, and get market rate tenants really wasn't there yet. So we figured that uh, the best avenue to go was someone who did subsidized development, affordable housing, senior housing, that sort of thing. Uh, so we found at the time the one and only developer in town that had done transit-oriented uh, development uh, that was subsidized, affordable housing, and uh, ended up Getting into contract with them, everything was going swimmingly. Um, at the time, I had been invited. We have neighborhood councils out here in Los Angeles, which is basically a group of residents for each particular neighborhood that get together and talk about land use issues and safety and sort of help give uh, the council members the direction that they'd like to see their neighborhood go. And uh, having owned a bunch of properties in this neighborhood and been invited to be on the land use committee, all I heard was, you know, the neighboring. Culver City, which is a little more upscale and more expensive, was starting to push into their neighborhood. And a lot of new development opportunities were coming in, but nothing was geared towards affordable housing. So everyone was concerned about, well, what about us? We're getting pushed out of our neighborhood. So I thought that uh, they were going to be ecstatic when I came in with an affordable housing developer that uh, was going to build 72 units of affordable housing. And uh, it didn't quite work out that way. Mm. Um, they were appalled that <laughs> we would come in and build a project in their neighborhood and bring uh. people that were, you know, whom they in their minds had created as the the ones that live in affordable housing uh, to, to live in amongst them in their neighborhood. So uh, it ended up being a protracted, attracted, uh, education. Um, I'm not going to say battle, but uh, negotiation back and forth to get the support of the neighborhood. But uh, we unfortunately didn't know it at the time. We're up against uh, a financial collapse. The uh, the recession? The recession. And uh, when 2007 hit, it killed most all new development in Los Angeles and and our project uh, being one of them. So
1: you were stuck.
2: You own the property, though, at
1: this point, right? You actually...
2: Yeah, I owned uh, one of the pieces, uh, the Keystone piece. I call it. that was right in the middle, and so it was just a, a few years. And luckily, we bought it at a um, at a level that allowed it to cash flow. So you know, we held on to it. I managed relationships with the other owners, managed personalities uh, in the neighborhood, and uh, we retooled. And as the market started to come back, we found an, another opportunity with uh, actually. The Project Manager for the initial Developer had gone and uh, started working at another company, and we were you know kept in contact and uh, it ended up you know, getting together one day and talking and they made an offer and basically started up again. And at, at this point, the way that a lot of affordable housing developers get their funding is through redevelopment agencies or had been through redevelopment agencies in Los Angeles. Well, uh, Governor Brown got rid of those. So another stumbling block is that it became very difficult to finance these projects. So you had to have um, particular directions you took them, really niche directions in order to get funding sources. So uh, that's when the idea and the opportunity to provide veterans housing yeah. uh, came about. And that's how they ended up ultimately financing the project and get done.
1: Did you say the veterans like administration that who's financed it or who ultimately ended up financing it?
2: Uh, Yeah, the way that affordable housing works Mm -hmm. is you you typically have a fairly large capital stack or or stack of where you get your money to do the deal. So some of it comes from private equity, some of it comes from, uh, you know, the housing department funds in the city, some of it may come from the state level. Some of it may come from, in in this case, a fund that's set aside for transit-oriented de- development on the state level. And then the balance of what you need comes from specific groups or uses. And this, in particular, was the Veterans Association that has uh, money set aside for developments that will specifically go towards housing returning veterans.
0: So your job, again, and I, I called you a bundler before, you kind of gripped everybody together. I mean, again, on this type of thing, it, this is very different than doing a, a flip or a wholesale of residential property. I mean, there's a lot of additional moving parts here. You're doing all the work to bring all these parties together uh, to to basically lock some kind of thing in so that your little piece of property, that little keystone property that you own gets acquired. I mean, that's right. kind of the end all be all. Did you end up owning a stake of the actual development project that came on top or or No.
2: No, we decided to uh, to step aside, and and when the opportunity came for we, we had pursued that and thought about that uh, during the recession just to figure out another exit strategy. But yeah. when the affordable housing developer came in, that ultimately ended up buying it. Um, it those are typically situations where you step out as a market rate uh, developer or investor.
0: So your piece, I mean, your you did all this work just to really flip a little piece of property. I mean, is is kind of the end all be all, right?
2: Yeah, okay. exactly.
0: And so I don't know if you're if you're able to. I mean, is there any way can you share those numbers with us on what it looked like? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Absolutely. We we bought the property for um it was somewhere around four twenty or four hundred and thirty uh, thousand and ultimately sold it for a million seventy five.
0: Wow. Not bad. And yeah. and that took how many years?
2: Uh, we closed escrow this year, so 2014, and we bought it. Uh, was 2006. Wow, wow. so yeah. it was yeah. a long hold, long yeah. haul. With yeah. your
1: cash flow during that time, you said,
2: Yeah, it uh, it covered the property, yep. and um, you know, very different. I'm actually going through uh, the process of getting a retail loan right now. Uh, it, it's One of the first ones that I've done that's been, you know, other than hard money or uh, private equity uh, into deals, and I'm realizing how hard it is to get loans for the average consumer now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, But very different back then. It was, uh, you know, it it was still at the point where as long as you had a pulse— and yeah, uh, yep. knew which numbers to write on the, uh, the form, you know, pretty much anybody could get a loan. So that's,
0: that's fascinating. And that that's, it's pretty cool. I mean, to, to just think you had the vision to see that, you know, there more, more could be done. Had you, had you not, I mean, you, your property, you know, if you take appreciation and w- what would that thing have been worth if you were just selling it based on land value or the value of the property itself?
2: On its own, yeah. you know, not as a development site. Yeah. Well, um, during the throes of the recession, we'd be lucky if we'd have got 200,000 for yeah. it. Um, you know, uh, earlier this year on its own, maybe somewhere close to break even.
0: Yeah. So you having the wherewithal to see the big picture allow you to create all that value. And that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah.
2: And a lot of luck, you know, it, it yeah. really, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. really is.
0: Yeah, for sure. Hey, really quick. You had talked about land use meetings and throughout, you know, you, you've talked about just kind of knowing the law, knowing what's happening in the area. Seems to me that that's something that that's given you a, a distinct advantage. Maybe not over other sophisticated investors, but pro- probably over what a less sophisticated investor would be able to do. Particularly like a case like this one. You know, somebody without the foresight to see all the big picture would have bought the property with the intent of doing something, but not seeing that they could package it. You know, they're not going to get that much value out. How much of your uh, special advantage what's the word you use branding your your secret sauce you use a word that,
1: that tar- unfair advantage
0: your unfair advantage <laughs> that you have comes from going to land use meetings really understanding what city council's doing and uh, understanding what's happening in in these areas that you're focusing on
2: yeah well um, i i think that uh what 's difficult for a lot of people, especially when they 're just getting started in this any I would imagine business, is that you, you focus on the nuts and bolts of whatever is specific to that industry you know you uh, you read all the real estate books, how to flip this, how to flip that, and you miss sometimes the bigger picture uh, so if if there's a secret sauce. On my end, it's always trying to take a couple of steps back to really understand the bigger picture, understand how people are moving through the city, understand what's uh, what's not working right, and uh, the ideas of of what people would like to see to fix it. Yeah, uh, you know, that's I guess the secret sauce. There you okay. go. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> like awesome.
1: It. So you mentioned uh, private equity earlier, um, raising money. Part of the money that for the development and, and for things you work on, it comes from private equity. Can you talk about that a little bit? What is that, and how do you do that?
2: Yeah, it's uh, well, anything other than debt, um, money that's not your own. Uh, so, you know, there there are various ways you can do it. And, and now actually, those opportunities are, are larger than they've been in the past. There's uh, crowdfunding, um, which uh, a few websites that basically allow people that, uh, you know, have small amounts to money, uh, small amounts of money to sort of pool it together with other people that have small amounts of money to put it into a bigger pile and do bigger projects mm-hmm. uh, that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to, to get a piece of or be a part of, uh, down to just finding accredited investors or essentially guys that have um, a certain level of net worth that uh, are looking for places to put that money in order to, to earn a return.
1: Do you, yeah. have, do you have any good recommendations on on uh, you know how do we uh, maybe how does a smaller guy somebody who's newer at this game how do they attract that kind of financing is it even possible?
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, money finds good deals, and uh, what they really want to know is well, uh, people are going to be interested in your track record, um, but I think equally important is your your organizational skills and, and the fact that you're you know you show them or you demonstrate to them that you're you're not doing this part-time that uh, you're not trying to turn a quick buck um, that you didn't just come out of one of the, uh, the, you know, how to get rich quick seminars, but rather, you know, <laughs> you've taken an interest in really doing real estate and you've done your homework and you've put a plan together. Um if you go to people and say, look, these these are the types of deals that I'm going to go after, these are the types of returns that I'm going to target and if I find something that fits these criteria, I'm going to need money to help me get it done. Uh it's it's you know, if you come in and pitch an accredited investor that way, um, you're going to find far more success than if you just wait until you have a deal and then cross your fingers and say, "Please come on, this is a great deal. Come on, don't let yeah. this, you know, don't let this pass." Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, yeah. And I and I want to drill on that a little bit more. Then is uh, when you pitch an investor, uh, I mean, mm-hmm. what do, what does that even look like in in your world? I mean, like, is how serious do you take these things? Like, do you sit down? You have a meeting. You, you sit across the table from one. or is this like, hey, let's grab Starbucks and talk? I mean, how do you pitch an investor?
2: Uh, it's different. Uh, it, there are some investors that uh, you know they they just want you to write down a, a few numbers on the back of a an napkin and sign it, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know those those types of investors come with longer term relationships and uh, longer track records of success, uh, and some of them are are far more formal, and they'll want to see you put together a full projection uh, of financials on you know where you expect the market to go support it with comps sometimes an appraisal um, they're going to want to see other projects that you've done in the past that are similar to that so they know you know what you're doing and an exit strategy
3: oh
0: so what do you show them what do you give them you know what i what you could just make stuff up can't you can't you just say hey i did you know this deal and that deal how do you prove to somebody that you've got a track record
2: hey, well it, well you prove to somebody you have a track record by showing them what you've done, but uh, in their
0: oh, that's there yours, that's mine phone. You about that. <laughs> same guy,
2: <laughs> mine's easy to, <laughs> to shut off. <up>. Uh, <laughs> but but short of a track record, you know, you, you show them that you have a plan and an understanding of what you're going after, and you you try not to deviate from that plan, and and you know. You can have different plans um, that meet different criteria, but uh, you just got to be consistent in what you give somebody. Uh, You don't go to someone and say, look, I'm buying something that, you know, only properties in in these types of neighborhoods that I'm going to fix and then sell right away and we should get returns of X. And then a week later, come to them and say, hey, I've got this great apartment building that I'd like to buy and hold, want to invest. Yeah. You know, that tells the guy, wait a minute, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing or what he wants to do. Um, you know, so you've got to stay focused, you've got to come up with a plan and you've got to be consistent.
0: Yeah. Makes sense. Makes yeah. sense. So I you know, this is I think Brandon's question. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal it, but okay. how can a how can a new investor compete with you? I mean, you're, you know, I don't know, man. You're you seem like a pretty smart guy. How do I get in there and and get a piece of the action when there's guys like you out there?
2: Well, in Southern California, there are plenty slices of the pie, and uh, you know, so th- so there's enough for everyone uh, if you know where to find them. Yeah, uh, it's it's not a market where you're gonna you know get up in the morning with your cup of coffee, go on the MLS, and you're gonna see 80 new listings that are priced well below the market and be the only guy that's chasing them. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know the way that uh, you compete is you find your niche, whatever that may be. And, and in a market like Los Angeles that is uh, compact and, and so um, large, there can be you can be very hyper niched and still have quite a bit of opportunity. So uh, the way you compete is you just figure out what you love, what you're willing to do when it doesn't feel like work, uh, and you know you're on your downtime and really go after an investment strategy that suits that
0: that makes sense. Yep. That makes sense. Well, before we move on to the, to the fire round, uh, I'm, I'm just curious if you have any other, uh, last tidbits that you, you might want to share, uh, just kind of general knowledge or like, you know, craziest thing you've done, anything like that.
2: Craziest thing I've done. Um, I, I can share my mistakes. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, you know? Love it. Okay. Love it. So, um, or the mistakes I, that, that people make I actually wrote these down. So, uh, uh, on the buy side I think the biggest mistake that people make is not knowing when to pass uh, and, and especially if you're value added real estate or if you're someone that likes to solve problems it's sometimes hard to just figure out you know what no matter how you skin it this isn't going to work yeah. and to move on to the next one
0: and that's hard
1: uh, that's hard to yeah. yeah, get emotionally right?
2: involved yeah
0: at least some uh, of us do <laughs> I do <laughs> those of us who have emotions Brandon <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, On the rehab side, uh, one of my early lessons is uh, force-feeding, not to force-feed. What do you you mean? It it seems like a lot of new investors will figure out uh, or think that they've figured out what everybody else wants. Mm. And particularly someone that um, grew up or lives in one of the uh, more expensive neighborhoods, going into a more affordable neighborhood and thinking, well, I would never live without this or without that and making sure that they spend the extra money to put it in only yeah. to find out that after they close escrow, someone rips it out and puts something completely different. Yeah. And, uh, the way that that had played out for me is uh, I had been, you know, again, back in the 90s restoring historic homes in North Pasadena, which was a higher price point than one of the other markets I had moved into, but found this beautiful craftsman home. So, I took it upon myself to make sure that I, I got only the the, the right paint colors that you would use that were appropriate for that time, put in certain kitchens that I felt were you know, appropriate for a craftsman home, landscaped it, again, the way I thought you should for a craftsman home, sold the house. A month later, came back. The entire outside landscaping was torn out.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: the house was painted a completely different color. And the cabinets that uh, I had put into the kitchen, those period-specific cabinets, were torn out, and they didn't even have the courtesy of throwing it in the trash. It was sitting on the curb for the trash man to just come and pick up, or anyone else that was driving the neighborhood. So, nice. it, what you feel is appropriate isn't always necessarily what the market feels appropriate. So you got to be aware. Of
0: That's a great selling, one. That's what- a great one. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people, especially I think newer rehabbers, tend to over rehab as well. You know, not just get the style you know, assume the style is going to be what they want, but they, they kind of, you know, they they overdo it and and it's the, it's the same thing, you know, don't, don't make that assumption, uh, update, upgrade to the level that that property is, is at, because otherwise you're just wasting money that you don't need to waste.
2: Yeah. 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 And then the, another really big one on the selling side is uh, forgetting to qualify your buyers. I've seen so many people make this mistake that uh, in thinking that the highest price that comes in is automatically the best deal. Let's go to escrow with them, only to find out 30 to 45 days later that 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 buyer couldn't perform. Yeah, uh, it's it's extraordinarily important to qualify your buyer before you tie that yourself to them in an escrow or, or in any type of contract to get yourself out.
0: So, I guess the obvious follow up question to that is, how does one do that?
2: Well, what we do, first step, is uh, we have preferred lenders uh, that we work with that uh, I know will be very candid with me and won't sugarcoat whether or not somebody is financially capable of closing a deal. And so I I ask everyone to cross-qualify with my preferred lenders. Um, They don't have to use them to get their loan, but at least then I know, usually within – a few hours or a quick credit reference, whether or not this person can, can actually get themselves qualified.
1: And, and what price point are you talking, do you make people do that? I mean, are we talking, you buy out, you know, $200,000 house, you're going to make the sell, the buyers do that. Or if you're trying to sell a $200,000 house, are you talking only for million dollar you know, properties?
2: I, at any level, okay. I, it's especially important at uh, the more affordable levels or on the FHA level. You hope that uh, the the real estate professionals or the brokers that buyers are working with at the higher price points will do their own qualifying. Um, but it's equally as important at that price point as well to make sure that, uh, you know, if someone says they can spend three, four million dollars on a property, they have the financial wherewithal to do it.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. I think that's really good. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah, had that before. Sure. I've had my properties tied up several times and then they back out a month later because uh, I just, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the most I ever do is I'm like, well, are they pre-qualified? Yes, okay, you know, it's this as far as I ever push it, I never even look in. So yeah, that's a really good tip. Yeah, so. e-
2: even on the investing side, you know, if if you're selling something to an investor or something pre-renovation, mm-hmm. uh, understanding the difference uh, on whether you're getting into bed with a wholesaler or an investor. Uh, you know, asking somebody, well, what have you closed or how many deals have you closed in the last month or two months? Uh, what are the addresses? Checking on those addresses. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not to say that going into contract with a wholesaler is a bad thing, um, but you got to know what you're getting into. And if you think you're getting uh, into a deal with a an investor only to find out that someone's trying to, to wholesale the deal, it could be disappointing.
1: Yep. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, hey, let's kind of start to wrap things down here and move on to the It's time for the fire round. These questions come straight from the bigger pockets forums, and we're going to fire them at you, Alan. Um, Okay. All right. Number one, what are your thoughts on short sales? Do you go after them or do you avoid them?
2: Uh, I've done about my team and I about 350 short sales over the course of the last few years. Uh, So, yes. We go after them. They're great opportunities, and again, if you're a problem solver, uh, it they're, you know, they're they're a great spot to be. But uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of patience, and it's really you know two different transactions that you're working on. One is selling the property. The other is figuring out a settlement with the bank. So, yeah. um, they're very involved. Um, I, I would think that going forward from this point, uh, you're probably going to see very few. Uh, And even if the, you know, people are still upside down in their properties, banks are going to be less motivated to settle short, you know, versus carrying it out through a foreclosure because odds are, or at least the way the market's moving right now, property values are going up, uh, not in the other, you know, other direction, which is part of what helped, you know, push a bank towards a short sale decision.
0: Hey, Alan, how big is your team really quickly?
2: Uh I, I'm big on collaboration. So uh a lot of the people that I work with are separate companies that we just have joint ventures with. Sure. Uh, my team in my company is uh three people. Uh okay. someone that does accounting and I have a field person that goes out and and looks at properties and that sort of thing and myself. Um, but you know, the group of people that I work with, uh, you know, I've got attorneys, um, uh, I had when we were doing a lot of short sales. I had a team of three different people that all they did is call the bank all day long, from the mm-hmm. moment they got in the office till the moment they left at the end of the day, um, calling and negotiating, making sure that files were moving forward. Yeah. So gotcha, gotcha. I, I think that's
1: an interesting point too, about not yeah. having to hire every single person to actually be a W two employee just to mm-hmm. to work with them. I mean, there's a lot you can do just by a, you know hiring other companies. I think that's great. Yeah, for sure. Next one.
0: Well. All right. So next question on the fire round is, here we go. With tight inventory, how much of a discount can an expector, I'm having a hard time here. Let me try again. With tight inventory, how much of a discount can an investor expect to get?
2: You got it out. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, And and my answer to that is, you know, I have no idea. And 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 the reason is, for me, I don't really look at a a discount because I rarely agree with the market value that someone brings to me when they when they show me a property. So I look to hit a particular return. And for me, if I I turn my uh, rehab project around in about six months, um, I look to hit an eight to ten percent return every six months so anywhere from what is that a 16 to 20% return annually
1: okay okay cool what are the best ways to find investors to fund your deals we kind of talked about this earlier but yeah
2: yeah like equity partners sure yeah what's the best way to find them um well, I think to to get deals done yourself and start or, or come up with a plan, like we said, if, if you don't have a lot of deals under your belt. But um, short of that, I go to investment club meetings. Sometimes they're, they're not as fruitful. Sometimes they are. If you can walk away with one business card that's worthwhile to me, that's a worthwhile trip. I like to look at uh, – comps, uh, in the markets that I'm in and find out who it is that's buying and renovating these properties, call those investors, get to know them, uh, find out who their partners are, who their hard money lenders are. And really it's getting to know your competition, getting to know what they're doing and what successes they're having and asking them just straight out, you know, who, who invests with, with you.
0: Nice. Nice. All right. Last question for someone new to rehabbing and no money to start. Where would you say is the best place for them to get the funding, or should, should they even move on and try and rehab when they don't have their own cash?
2: Uh, well, it, that's a that's a tough one to answer in general. I would say that if you have a construction background, the answer is going to be a bit different than someone who doesn't know how to to wield a hammer. Yep. If you can, you know, bring the skill to the table, if you're an architect and you can bring the design, you know, element to the table, uh, then you can go out there and find the financial partners to partner with you. Um and and that would be, I would think, the smartest way to to go out and and put a, a team together is go out if you have those skill sets, go out and find something that you feel you can add value to again, put together the financials on, on, you know, what it would take to get there and money will find good deals. And and what if you don't,
0: what if you have no skills like Brandon?
2: (laughs) If you, you know, I, I think that, uh, you're going to have to find a skill or, (laughs) or bring your own money to the table. Uh, you know, and, uh, you can always learn. Uh, you can learn how to spot a deal. You can learn how to put something under contract. Um, you know that—that's a skill. That's a value add in itself. Uh, yeah. If you, you know, if you've locked yourself into a deal and nobody else can buy it out from under you, you know, like I'd said earlier, that's bringing something to the table that has value.
1: Yeah. yeah. I think I, I, I think I said that line in, in, the, in the book that we came out with recently was like, there may be such a thing as no money down, but there's nothing called no investment down, right? There's always an investment of something, whether it's capital or creativity or experience yeah. or whatever. I think that's yeah. uh, kind of summed that up well. So
0: by the way, I've got to ask this question. I saw it in my notes and my notes tell me that you've done all, upwards of almost a billion dollars in transactions as, throughout your career. Is that, is that uh, an accurate assessment?
2: Yeah, that's correct. Yes.
0: Holy smokes, holy smokes! What's the biggest deal that you were part of? I'm just just curious. What you know? What was it?
2: Uh let's see. Um, Put you on the spot uh, here. Just uh, yeah, I know, right? Uh, dollar volume size. Yeah, dollar
0: volume size. Yeah.
2: Um, office building downtown Los Angeles. Uh, is twenty three million dollars.
0: Okay. Wow. And you were the broker on that. Yeah, right on. Cool. Wow. And was that was that exciting? Being part of a, a deal of that size or or same same as uh, everything else
2: um yeah actually it's uh an empty building that uh is going to that used to be housing or excuse me used to be an office space and is now going to be housing with retail on the bottom so you know again it's functionally obsolete building yeah. or or maybe not functionally obsolete but something that had a higher and better use if it was repurposed for something else so yeah. a lot of fun right nice.
0: yeah watching watching the transformation of la I I moved out there in 2000, and just seeing how it's changed over the years. And I mean, you know, some of these projects—it's—it's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's happening across the country now. But it's—it's it's a lot of fun to watch these things, and and knowing that we as real estate investors and and a, you know commercial brokers are are playing a role in in the changing face of our cities. And I I think it's it's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's fun for me. I love being a part of it whenever I get the opportunity to.
0: Yeah, right on. All right. Hey, let's move on to the world famous famous
1: for these questions we ask everyone every week. So let's see what you got to say. Number one. All right. What is your favorite real estate related book?
2: Let's see. I I'm, I'm less about the books that are nuts and bolts, real estate uh, and more about uh, stuff that's, uh, you know, a bigger picture, more about planning and understanding what moves. So my favorite book is very Los Angeles specific. It's called Reluctant Metropolis, uh, and uh, it's written by a guy named Will, William Fulton. And it's uh, all about all of the political aspects and uh, other policy uh, making that, that's happened over the course of the years in Los Angeles to sort of create both the problems and uh, all of the successes that have happened in the city. Nice.
0: Cool. Nice. What about your favorite business book?
2: Uh, my favorite business book is actually, I think it's only about 80 pages long. And uh, okay. it's written by a guy named Bo Peabody who uh, started a company called Tripod. That's Back, his real name? He, Bo Peabody is his okay. real name. Okay. And it's called Lucky or Smart. And uh, he, uh, again, started this company that was uh, basically a... Uh, it allowed people to build websites back in the early 90s, which was a very novel thing. Sold it to a company called Lycos and uh, ended up being locked into his, instead of getting cash for the investment, it was a $50 million buyout. Uh, he got stock in Lycos and was forced to hold on to it for a certain number of years. Mm. I think it was like three years. Uh, it went actually just the opposite. It uh, ended up going up tenfold. Oh, wow. Okay. He, he sold it. Uh, just before the collapse of the uh, internet bubble, uh, because he wanted to buy a house and he didn't understand stocks, so he put it all in bonds. So the book is about uh, as an entrepreneur n- recognizing the difference of when you're lucky and when you're smart. Gotcha, just gotcha. I'll yeah, check Lycos,
0: that out. Lycos was like that was that was the Google of the day. That was a great right? site. I loved used yeah. to love that site. There was a little dog, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think yeah, I think you're right. I think that was the the dog's name was Lykos.
0: Yeah, something like that. Cool, yeah. cool. Well, it sounds like an interesting book. Um, <laughs> hobbies. What wh- what do you do for fun?
2: Uh, well, I've been surfing since I was a kid, uh, so I-, I still do that when uh, I get the opportunity. Wh- where, where do you surf? Uh, I grew up down in Orange County, so uh, my preferences are still Huntington Beach or uh, if I can find the time to get down to Trestles, uh, which is closer to San Diego. I am trying my best to uh, be consistent and find the time to get a pilot's license, which is uh, something I've wanted to do since uh, I was in college. Nice. And it's kind of dorky, but started beekeeping about a year ago. Really? Oh, cool. Yeah. That's
0: That's cool. That's great. It's great. My brother does that. So it's, uh, oh, yeah? it's kind of an interesting, uh, interesting hobby.
2: Yeah. And for a real estate guy watching bees and how they move around the hive and the thing that things that they do is, is it's really fascinating. Oh, that's, that's cool. cool.
1: My next door yeah. neighbor has a bunch of well. My next door neighbor died yesterday, actually, but he he had, yeah, he had bees. Uh, He's old. He's 98 or something like that, but he had, uh, he has a ton of bees in his backyard. So we get the benefits of the flowers and the uh, garden. Like we have like the best looking, my wife has like the best looking garden in our, in our area because the bees, I don't know. It's great. So um, cool. All right. Let's move on to my last question of the day. Alan, what do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who either give up, uh, fail or never get started in the first place?
2: Tenacity is is certainly something that uh, is going to set you apart. You know, it's uh, and that kind of plays in, I guess, to the other thing, and that is uh, being dedicated to it. If if you come out, and again, it's so easy to spot. The guys that went to the Get Rich Quick seminar over the weekend calling you on Monday, Tuesday, whether they're calling you as a broker uh, or calling you to pitch you a deal, um, there's a difference people can tell when you're just trying to make a quick buck versus trying to really add value uh, you know, in real estate. So I think that that's, that's important is really understanding where you can add value to the transaction and really looking at it uh, from that perspective rather than how quickly can I turn a buck.
0: That's great, yeah. That's great. Well, Alan, before we let you go, where where can people find out more about you? I know you've got a website. Um, you want to share that with us, and and anything else you got?
2: Yeah, my website is a s g r e i n c dot com or Alan Sean Glass Real Estate Inc dot and then of course I'm on all of the social media sites on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter,
0: Bigger Pockets.
2: Bigger pocket. Of course, oh, yeah. I'm on bigger oh, pockets. I'm just, I'm just checking.
0: I'm just saying. I, <laughs> I, I had a cough. You know, was, yeah, I couldn't control myself. So Good job. yeah, awesome. Awesome, man. Well, listen, we, we really, really do appreciate you taking the time. And, and uh, we thank you for all the uh, fascinating insight. I, I think you, you definitely opened at least my eyes to, to a couple of things and my head's starting to spin, which, which is a beautiful thing. So thanks. Uh, thanks for being on the show. We, we do appreciate it. And uh, we will certainly see you around.
2: Of course, I had fun, and I appreciate you guys. Thank you very much. All right, you got it. Thanks, Alan. Take care.
0: All right, guys, that was Alan Glass on show ninety eight of the Bigger Pockets podcast. You can check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show ninety um, eight. This was, a, was definitely a, a cool show, Brandon. I mean, we 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 haven't done a ton of commercial shows, and the ones we've done. I mean, this. I really like this one because, again, of of that concept of of driving value, and not just the concept of driving value, but finding creative and clever ways of doing it. And and Alan's story about you know buying that lot and you know just kind of being really smart about what he did with it, and you know increasing the value by by multiples was was phenomenal.
1: What I like about it too is that that strategy kind of shows the whole like. Mentality of bigger pockets, in that there is no like recipe book on this is exactly how you do a deal. Like, there's no book called "How to Put Together a Deal with Like Four Different Properties, Combine Them Together, and Bring in Equity Partners and Bring in the VA." And I'm actually writing
0: that book right now. (laughs) Good, yeah,
1: good. I'm glad you are. So, yeah, I, I I thought it was great. I thought it was excellent.
0: Yeah, awesome, awesome. Well. If you guys uh if you guys want more like this keep listening if you haven't listened to any of our previous shows definitely get out there and check them out you could listen on iTunes on Stitcher we're starting to upload our our shows to SoundCloud and uh we're also putting uh, older episodes on YouTube so we're we're all over the place if if you're looking for a different way to to check us out uh there there's quite a few methods to do so beyond that just come join us on Bigger Pockets you know Bigger Pockets is the place that investors hang out Guys like Alan, who've done a billion dollars in transactions, spend time on bigger pockets down to guys who are just getting started. So, uh, you know, we definitely recommend you uh, give it a shot if you haven't already. Uh, Get on and get started. Uh, Otherwise, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, G+, LinkedIn, all the other various social networks, and you know, keep paying attention. Be good to your friends and family this Thanksgiving, and thank you for spending your time with us. And again, I am thankful to all of you guys for being a part of our world and. And for being part of Bigger Pockets and, and the audience of our show. So, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off.
2: You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors, large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online.
3: There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leka Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. See you there.